Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM in HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined tonight by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Ashley Hardgrave, and Tobias Wright. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with Sam, with the Samuel Hasselhorn, excuse me. The German baritone talks to Oliver about winning the Queen Elizabeth competition, what it's like to have a fest contract at the Wiener Staatsoper, and gets in the weeds about breathing technique. Fun stuff. But first, in Chalk Talk, we continue the conversation about sexual harassment and the abuse of power in opera with reference to the website Schmopera's recent call for stories about abuse and assault in the world of classical music. Plus, in the two-minute drill, there's a new music director coming to the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and you'll get our hot takes and all of this week's stories from Opera Land. And of course, you can call us on the air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories, 847-866-9687, or tweet us at Opera Box Score, or post on our Facebook page. So many options there. Now, without further ado, Oliver Camacho, how's it going? Oh, I think your mic's a little bit dead there. I might want to huddle up to Matt. Oh, wait, hang on just a second. Oh, no, this, that's all me. You're back. You're I'm, back. Here I am. No, <laughs> hey, it's, 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 it's season it's five. It's my first time Better after a long time off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm le- relearning all the buttons here. Here we go. All right, so how's it going, Oliver? It's going great, but Matt also has something to tell you. Oh, uh, Matt, and this is Matt Cummings. Yeah. What do you have to tell me? I don't remember <laughs> what I have to tell Weston <laughs> Oliver. Can you help me out here? This, this, so far, this episode's going really well. Ashley. We're professionals yeah. here. Ashley, how's it going? You know, it's, uh, it's going well. It's going well, I know that you had uh, you had asked if it was fall yet, and my answer is no, no, Weston. It is not officially. A- Ashley, welcome fall. to the sausage party. Yeah. This is what it's really like. I, listen, at Opera Box Court. listen, guys, I can hold my own. I'm ready to dance. I brought my shoes. Uh, I need it to be summer for the one week that is scientifically still summer. So fall starts on September 23rd. You got that, listeners? Nice. You have one more week of Ooh, summer. I'm not sure if I can hold out on the pumpkin spice until then. Tobias, right? What's your opinion on pumpkin spice? I remember what Matthew was gonna say. Ooh. Do I, tell. I, I would like to know. I'm not going to tell. Okay. Well, <laughs> it'll be a mystery. Stay what, tuned what for the answer. What is this mystery box we've created for this episode? I don't know. Is it related to my rewatch of Lost? Because that <laughs> show is a trip, everyone. Welcome to my 2004 hot takes. All right. I, I'm drawing a light in the sand here. We're going to talk some opera. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is opera box score that's what you're listening to first we're going to start off with some listener mail we have two messages from listeners uh stage director amy stebbins writes just want to add to your analysis of the european response to placido domingo european audiences and likewise artists and administrators do not think that this is a problem of america's being quote-unquote puritanical 
Rather, they are deeply, and she would argue rightly, concerned about the erosion of the rule of law at a moment when international populist movements are gaining serious traction. She can't speak for other contexts, but in the German-speaking region, the public wants criminal accusations to go through the courts and not through the press or, even worse, social media. It has been her experience that Europeans do not fear that Americans are being puritanical. They fear that they're being anti-democratic. And I think we'll probably talk about that a little bit more in the Chalk Talk, so we'll come back to you. But thank you uh, once again, Amy, for writing in. And also thank you to soprano Catherine Lewick, who uh, also wrote in. She says, hey, guys, just a quick note to say that I just listened to the podcast where you discussed my anti-body shaming movement. Thanks for talking about it on your show. It brought a smile to my face hearing you discuss it so intelligently. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> I wasn't here, so, you know, it was probably like, yeah, was. yeah, we did that, Wesley. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing to feel the support from all over the world about this. Helps my brain emit so also dealing with the haters. Some people are just so thoroughly misogynistic that they fail to see how ludicrous their views and sentiments are. Gross. On a brighter note, I had a really great chat slash interview with Zachary Wolf from the New York Times today, and he's planning to publish some sort of piece about it, which should keep the conversation going even more. You guys rock. Definitely putting this podcast on my must-listen list. Thank you so much, Catherine Lewick, and we hope we can uh, not disappoint you. Uh, yeah, I hope we haven't let you down already. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Catherine, I got your back. Don't worry. We got okay, this. We, we've got this. All right, let's move on to the Chalk Talk. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. All right. The Chalk Talk tonight, in the wake of the mounting allegations against Placido Domingo, the website Schmopera sent out a call for stories about abuse, assault, and harassment in the world of classical music and opera, and they quickly started to pour in. The site has begun publishing the stories from victims one at a time under the umbrella title hashtag the stories. We'll have a link to that on our website. And I believe they just published the uh, first one of those. Ugh, the first I think one. Three, three <laughs> are three out totally. So okay. Three. Oh, and <laughs> I'm working with an old link here. Um, uh, but yes, this is obviously a problem that's been uh, going on. I think uh, I, I really feel like the sort of ongoing downfall of Placido Domingo is kind of the. Uh, it really feels like a turning point in many ways uh, to me uh, because in terms of name recognition, even outside the quote-unquote opera world, there is no one bigger than Placido Domingo. And I think if he can fall, anyone can fall and should fall <laughs> for but, this kind of thing, right? But has he really fallen yet? Well, that's the trick. Um, it depends on where you're pointing on the globe. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. Uh, there's a new opera. Uh, there's a uh, yet more accusations that came out in the past few days. There's an Opera Wire article uh, of, of about Placido Domingo being accused of sex, excuse me sexual harassment by former employees of uh, Sony Classical. Um, L.A. Times uh, uh, has an article about uh, the L.A. Opera just basically trying to to he's like we we we're we're not associated with him, you know, kind of back they, up. He he is on leave right now while they, they right. hired a, an, an external law firm to investigate. It's, to... It, it's an odd, uh, it, it's, a, it's a really odd situation, as, at least as far as I think uh, the reactions of the companies to these big high-profile things. I, I, I think it's interesting to look at the Met and L.A. operas um, for Levine's scandal and um, Domingo's, respectively. Uh, and the the overwhelming sort of response seems to be tr sort of a legal distancing. I have, I'm not seeing well, much in the way of... I think the overwhelming response, especially at a super high level, uh, like the Metropolitan, was that they wanted it to go away. 
Right. They didn't want to come up with a solution or, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about is advocating for policy. Right. Um, because none of what we're learning is surprising. Um, and unfortunately, like, I read the three Shmapra hashtag the stories, and every one of them I read is like, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that sounds like things that I know that have happened um, to people. Yeah. And that sounds like a young artist program and, and an abuse of power. And so, like, has Domingo fallen? No. Uh, do I anticipate there to be a fall from grace? No. I anticipate there being a legal settlement. Um, out of right. outside of the public eye, and so to me, that's not a victory for anyone um, until policy is enacted, and or you know, and that's where we are. That's where everything begins is with conversation, and we're having the conversation. Um, and so, I don't know. That's I guess that's kind of my opinion is that the, that there's no fall from grace. There's going to be a settlement, and then Domingo will be fine. Well, and candidly, I mean, if you were a major house, if you were a major opera company, would you want to be the one stepping forward and taking ownership over decades of poor behavior right. from a specific artist? So, you know, I, I am also equally frustrated with with the sort of distancing and absolvement of these houses. But if you look at it from their side, they, no, you know, the Met's not going to stand up and be like, yep, our bad. Sorry, we didn't you know, we, we should have. We should have done, but so it's the same thing about ownership. But also, I can see how it's very easy for them to just sort of hot potato it, but, but put their hands up and say, "Not it." Don't you think it'd be really refreshing oh, if one of them said, "Said you know what? We lost, we lost track of this, um, and we allowed things to happen that we we didn't necessarily realize." Hundred percent. Yeah, and, I agree with you. We on that. see that now, and we're going to be the leaders. We're going to enact um, change that is long lasting. That takes a deep and hard look at our past behavior and what we've allowed to take place within these right. walls where it's a sacred moment of creating art, right? Totally. That, that has been abused by so many. And I think if, an, if a company did that, I mean, imagine how many eyes that would open if someone took full responsibility for um, the behaviors of their past and said, we will never allow that to happen again. I, I wish I could. I mean, I, I, Oliver, it, quit looking at me like in my heart, <laughs> Like in my heart of hearts, I want that to be true of the public too. But I have a feeling that the reason why all these companies are trying to thread this needle between give it, distancing themselves and not taking these accusations too lightly and also not taking a firm stance is they're not sure which side of the scale the like the full force of public opinion is going to come down on. That's a good point. So they're trying to hedge their bets about mm. like whether the whether the audience is going to be outraged that he's being ousted or whether they're going to be outraged that he's being kept around. And so they want to keep their options open. That's which just, is why I think the Domingo story is so important because... If, I call that hornswoggle. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> hornswoggle, that's my drag name. <laughs> uh, I, I do think that there's... Uh, I, I think there's something to be said for um, the idea that there are some changes happening. Uh, just by virtue of the way legality works, there are things that are almost accidentally being put in place that will make this sort of thing harder in the future. Um, but it's not. It, it's always to avoid uh, a lawsuit, to avoid this and that and the other. Um, I do think there's also sort of an organic uh, breakdown of the, you know... Of the notion of the big star, the the Levine, the the Placido Domingo, who you depend on for ticket sales, um, and they can kind of get away with whatever they want because you need the tickets that come with that person. I think that sort of culture is starting to die out in opera to a certain extent. I, I think it's still. Uh, I mean, I think people were saying that about his directing and conducting efforts years right. ago too. I mean, that's not even on the same scale of 
a violation of the public trust and, and uh, you know, expectations of decency. But he has been able to get away with doing things that he is not necessarily very good at for a very long time because he is because Placido he's Placido Domingo. Domingo, right? And I think that yeah. that kind of and I mean from or even him singing baritone, like he he is indulged. Yeah, it's like it, when Jordan played baseball. Exactly. It's like okay, go ahead, do and, that for a little while. And <laughs> and even though it's not, I mean, even though the the situations are not comparable, I think the way that people react to him. I just want to say, something. Ashley made the best sports reference of any male in this room. Uh, <laughs> in their, She's in here, their fellas. Years, in their Wait, that actually happened? It wasn't just Space Jam? <laughs> Listen, here's your chance. Do your dance at the Space Jam. All right. <laughs> Classic I thought it was song. just a seminal work of 90s. When, when is someone going to step up and be brave and write the Space Jam opera I want to have written? Oh, uh, what are we... <laughs> Just put it on pause. Let's go do it right now. All right, we're going. We're going. (laughs) No, I I think I think you're right. The 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 idea, the notion of you know, sort of the the one famous face driving the ticket sales. You're right. That is starting to break down. Unfortunately, these houses have already. I mean, they're they're caught in a trap of their own design at this point. They have leaned into this for so long. They have absolved or ignored or brushed aside this behavior for so long Mm -hmm. that again, we're going back to our houses. I mean, really going to step up and take ownership. At least in the U.S., right. how many artistic organizations are built around one personality? You know, the success of XYZ Orchestra is based on this one venerable conductor who nobody likes working with. <laughs> I mean, I Domingo was the... I, what do you mean, Oliver? <laughs> what do you mean? Domingo was the, the general director of two different companies, two different major companies at the same time. Yeah, his name is on, what, two, three, <laughs> 11 young artist programs right now? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it's... What's going to happen to Operalia? Oh, that's a good question, actually. Mm. I, I would guess they're probably just going to remove his name and probably keep it going. It's his else. thing, though. It's like... It's it's he started it, didn't no? he? Mm-hmm. I don't know. MTV's still giving out the Michael Jackson video of Vanguard Award. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we're covering all sorts of ground today. This is impressive. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I think uh, we have obviously this sort of organic downfall, but it, 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 I think we can all agree it is not enough. I, I think what we need is some sort of institution to co- sort of publicly take the lead on creating some sort of model policy for dealing with uh, uh, sexual harassment, sexual abuse within not just opera, but within theater in general, or the arts in general, or everywhere in general, if I'm really being honest here. A shame walk with a scepter ringing a bell. Yeah, (laughs) something that isn't just, you know, a panel of... What a boring character. (laughs) (laughs) Something that isn't just a bunch of lawyers trying to clarify sort of legal responsibility, who gets to be sued, but someone that involves, you know... Uh, uh, victims, experts, people who are genuinely trying to make it something better. And I, I'm not really seeing that, at least in uh, uh, operatic institutions. I'm not seeing any company taking the lead on that, as I far think, as I know. So you're highlighting part of you know what I had said earlier, and that's that that offers a solution. And But you mentioned something you said, is the downfall enough? I don't know. Well, that's legality. And that's like part of the process. That's part of the reporting process. That's part of what policy is for. Like... It shouldn't be that there's a public shaming of Domingo. The, the fact remains is that there's probably like legality involved. There's laws right. that were broken, right. and there I, and that's the part that in like same, you know, with the Met and everything there. There were there are laws that have been broken that are yeah, not. Yeah. There's no justice being served there. It's and the so lack like, of enforcement of those laws. And so, right. I think, and that was Amy's point uh, in writing in right. 
Solar. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of. In, in, she says uh, that uh, the European sort of uh, concerned about the erosion of the rule of law at a moment right. when international populist movements are gaining serious traction. I can't speak for other contexts, but maybe that was contents. I can't. No, we I look contents. at like Al Franken's demise, and you know there right. was never a Senate investigation about his conduct. Right. And now there's new stories that are coming out that that woman who accused him, the original accuser, right, she's like a conservative pundit now. You know, and she, she always she was at yeah. the time. Yeah. Right. And but but her story now has has holes in it. Like they are finding that like. But there were more. There were more than one. I, I I'm not here to. So debate okay. The no. Of <laughs> so we're right. No, we're we're not here to debate that. But we are here to debate the fact that there was no. Uh, ah, I get really upset. I actually mentioned this in Oliver in our pre-show. I was talking to you about like where does justice happen? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So justice doesn't happen. That's I mean. It has justice, to happen after the crime has already been committed. Unfortunately. Well, but justice do- isn't. All of us shaming Domingo and saying he shouldn't be associated with L.A. or Washington Nash or these young artist programs, that's not justice being served. No, he should be tried for assault. That's what should be happening. Exactly. Right. And right. that is part. that's where all these organizations in which these accusations have taken place, which is many of you know the institutions that we champion and whose, whose product we're so right. proud to have, but n- none of them have a policy in place to actually make sure that I, that is happening. Exactly. And now the outrage is coming in to fill that vacuum. Right. Because right. But nothing changes. As much all right. As so we're all outraged. And I feel like maybe <laughs> Ashley's champing at the bit. But I want to know from, from everybody, like based on what Weston just said, what, what do we see? What does that look like? What does an initiative to like, you know, get ahead of this or to take whatever, take the initiative, what does something like that actually look mm-hmm. like? And what could companies do? That would be satisfying for us. Well, you know, honestly, I don't know if it's a... I think it would be companies working with, like, a disinterested third party. Uh, there's an example that's happening here sort of in sort of the, the storefront theater community here in Chicago. Mm. Uh, it's something called Not In Our House. It was founded uh, two years ago in 2017. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's there to protect performers that are in Chicago theater. Uh, their mission is to, quote, lead a cultural shift to strengthen our collective experience by working together to protect and develop our artists, our theaters, and our Chicago theater community. Um this is something that's come out of a lot of not necessarily abuses in the context or the scale of what we're seeing with Domingo, but just generally unprotected, unsafe uh, working environments for actors in non-equity houses. You know, Chicago's a huge storefront theater community. It's the heartbeat right. of the theater community here in Chicago. And there are, again, young artists that are, are desperate for a chance to be on stage and to work roles. And because they are, again, bowing to the power of the people that are casting them or that are directing them or are scenic designing them, whatever, they were they were really just so happy to be there that they were they were not voicing and they were not speaking up when they were in unsafe work conditions or if they were with, you know, a, abusive artistic leadership. And so that's where Not In Our House came in. Um, this is actually something that just last week was in the news. Uh, Exit 63 Theater, their, uh, their cast for, I think this play was called Horse Girls, I think it was right, called. Yes. Um, and the show was effectively canceled. They called on Not In Our House to come in, you know, as a third-party organization to do an arbitration between the actors and I believe it was the director, but kind of the artistic administration as a whole. And right. they couldn't come to an agreement on whether or not this was a safe working environment. Newsflash probably wasn't if that if the actors are there in unity. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but it went on to basically cancel the run of the show. So, and you know what that sounds to me is, I mean, that's what an HR department is for. Yeah. And so, so many, that I guess like the really boring answer is that a lot of companies in which this is happening don't have, you know, HR policies in which it's clearly expected. Now, 
the major opera companies do, right? They do have their union houses. They have HR departments, but I can think of some they of the small... an sm- AGMA rep, yeah. An AGMA rep, and I can th- but I can think of a lot of the smaller companies that I've worked for that I didn't even know who That's would I go and to I was in that really, situation. I was curious to see what was going to happen with the AGMA investigation into Domingo, and it, it's coming out that... They're they're being stymied by the companies because mm-hmm. they don't want to undercut their own independent investigation, right. it, and so it's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and there's a mm-hmm. lot of con- conflicts of interest. That's why you need this this sort of third party entity, this 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 uh, example of what what to do in this situation. Because going back to one of my previous points, not to repeat myself too much, but uh, a lot of these HR departments that do exist are basically about legally protecting the company from being sued when you fire someone uh, of because of sexual harassment. And that's basically where the line is drawn. They might have some nice language surrounding it about uh, listening and, and stuff, but it, it is, that's basically what it boils down to. There's a lot often about uh, clarifying what is legal, what is not, what things are legal, but they are allowed to fire you for, what things that are, are technically legal, but you can't really fire them for. And I feel like a lot of companies still operate around that principle, not just in opera, uh, but in these storefront theaters as well. Um, and that, that is what we need to change about these policies. We need to make it a little bit more proactive, not to uh, absolve responsibility, but to actually fix the problem. And I don't think we're seeing anything like that just yet, at least in the opera world. Right. So who out there wants to join me in starting this disinterested (laughs) third-party policy organization? Because I I am ready and lawyered up. I think it's cool, but, um, you know, Storefront Theater is much more agile than, you know, Lyric Opera of Chicago, for example. You know, like, and you can't, like, stop the railroad tracks on a show like, you know, The Ring Cycle, you know, which they've been planning for a decade or something like that. I mean, as much as I love The Ring Cycle, though, that would be a consequence they couldn't ignore, you know? Uh... Anyway, <laughs> I, I think it's 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 interesting point. There need to be some sort of uh, consequences for harboring these kinds of abusers. Well, how different would it be from, say, an orchestral strike? Since well, we're seeing a lot of those, it's they're, very similar. They're protesting, you know, quote unquote, unsafe work conditions. Whether that's you know inappropriate compensation or not enough union breaks, whatever it is. I mean, this is. This is the same kind of a thing. It's an unsafe work condition. Exactly. And uh, it's something that I think can be treated the same way. And people should look into that. Ashley and I have got it. We'll, we'll, we'll write up a proposal. <laughs> all right. We got to move on. Next up, we're giving Oliver the reins to go inside the huddle with German baritone Samuel Hasselhorn. Uh, that's up next only on America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Opera Box Score is supported by Opera Philadelphia's Festival 019, featuring 12 days of zany comedy, rare classics, and new music at venues across the city. If you guys want souvenirs, Toby and I will be. I'm going to Philadelphia! (laughs) That'll be a new meeting of City of Brotherly Love. Oliver and I are going to wear robes around the hotel room. It's going to be real zany. (laughs) I can't wait. I never use the shower cap, so if you want a shower cap, I'll bring it back. I absolutely do. Can you bring me those little lotions? I love those. Those are the only souvenirs I can afford. What's great (laughs) is when they give you uh, a dark towel in the bathroom for your makeup. Yes, yes. It's like, who wants to make the white towel dirty, you know? Yeah, make more work for the stuff. Guilt-free since 93. (laughs) Performances include the world premiere of Denny and Katya by Philip Venables and Ted Hoffman, an exploration of the dark side of social media based on a true story about teens who live-streamed their tragic deaths. 
There's also Prokofiev's rarely seen comedy, The Love for Three Oranges. You know somebody in the cast of that, right, Toby? I do. Who is it? It'll Steven be Steven DeGrossa. Steven DeGrossa. Which orange? Steven DeGrossa, we are coming <laughs> for you. I'm actually really excited. I'm, uh, I think we're going to go out for lunch which, on which, Saturday. Which orange is he going to be? I think the he's third. the second one. That's, a, that's, that's my favorite Spoilers, <laughs> everyone. Yeah. Handel Semele and Joseph Kecker's Let Me Die, which asks why opera has such a morbid obsession with death, are also part of this festival. It's not just opera that has an obsession with death. I mean, every like media that we consume is obsessed with death, isn't it? It's any medium in which Wozzeck has appeared. Yeah. In <laughs> no, I, I thought I made it clear. Okay, but... so for our, our lady in the audience, or in the panel here, what is your favorite death in a TV series? That's easy. Kenny from South Park. <laughs> <laughs> which, which time? Real teal, he died tearjerker. A million, uh, a million okay. tiny deaths. Matt, what is the most disappointing death in a TV series? I'm still holding out for justice for Cersei Lannister. The oh. best character on that show deserved a better ending. The Spoilers. most boring character on that show got the most boring death. Do Ooh. you remember when we hosted Opera Trivia? Yes. Uh, <laughs> How could I forget? <laughs> and I tried to throw in a trivia question about uh, Infigenia and which opera, which Game of Thrones character arc was the most like the death of Infigenia. <laughs> and you were and nobody blank, got it. Blank stares it, across it the took entire some, audience. We we had a lot of requests for a repeat read of that question. <laughs> let me tell you. Festival 019, September 18th through the 29th in Philadelphia. Tickets at operaphila.org. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So as most of you know, I was really excited about Samuel Hasselhorn returning to Ravinia Festival Steens Music Institute this summer as a vocal fellow. And um, sure enough, he was one of the few artists this year who have made me cry. And that is an achievement <laughs> because my heart is dead. So he's just one of those artists that really knows how to get inside a piece of music and find like the crux of the piece and deliver it in a way that just goes right to the heart. Uh, so uh, I snagged him for an interview while he was still uh, finishing his fellowship. And uh, he was quite candid about uh, what it's like to be uh, to have a fest contract at Wiener Staatsoper. But I think that's one of the most surprising parts for conversation. Uh, he also talks about breathing because I wanted to know what because like so many singers who you admire say, "Oh, I do this based on the text." Yes, everybody says that. But what do you really do to do something to make a very specific artistic choice with your voice? Uh, how do you express that? And he got into the weeds with me, which I love. So for those of you who are not singers, you might be disinterested for about two minutes of this conversation. But the rest is great <laughs> stuff. Yes. 
Well, you know, when you ask probably the older singers who mm. had a big career, they always ask, like, what was your turning point? Was mm. it the, winning this competition, doing this debut? And I kind of sense that probably this competition will be a very important competition for me when I look back in 20, 30 years. Um, it, it is very connected to very emotional things for me because at the same time, uh, my wife and I were expecting a baby. She was seven months pregnant. Mm -hmm. And my dad, just three or two, three weeks before the competition started, had a big heart attack. And he was laying in the hospital. Um, but we're at the same time going to my uh, my wife's screens for the baby. Yeah. So it was a very emotional thing. And I wasn't quite sure if I even should then go to this competition. And I um, basically, I, I didn't really lose my voice. I, I, singing was fine before the competition but it, something was just very stuck in my throat so i i skyped with my teacher in new york um patricia mccaffrey patricia mccaffrey uh, a day before i wanted to go to brussels and i told her what was up and i said um can you just work with me a little bit i want to just see if i can go to this competition or not if i feel good enough and she worked with me for 10 15 minutes and she said it's your decision your voice is totally fine and in, in the very end she just said one thing to me or one thing really stuck to me, what I need to do technically, and I did that all the way through the competition, and, and then I won it. Mm -hmm. um, everything is fine. My dad is fine. We have, a, we have a baby, so everything, the whole thing sounds very dramatic, mm -hmm. and, but in the very end, it's all good. Um, yeah. But this is very close to me and, and stuck in my head somehow when I think about this competition. But in the very end, I think what I did then in the competition um, was just... Oh, basically, many told many people told me, you know, you're you're giving us a concert and not a round of a competition, and that was exactly what I tried to do. In the second round, they said um, send us two recital programs and we pick one and we let you know 24 hours before you go on stage, and I just saw recital programs, so I just had leader and art songs all the way through, and everyone else had of course arias and oratorio maybe, but mainly opera arias, maybe sometimes a song. And uh, after the second round, everyone, because it's it's a very big thing in, in Belgium. I didn't quite expect that. You know, the TV is there, uh, radio, everyone's writing about this. Everyone's cheering for... Uh, That's like, like whole, Eurovision. <laughs> almost. Like the host families have like a little thing going on. Like, no, my, my uh, participant is way better than yours. And, mm. you know, like little fights and dramas going on in Brussels. But um, um, everyone was kind of saying, you know, you... Uh, you're just singing a lead that's that's not really fair or something or like this is not really the whole thing that you need to offer and I thought like you know what I mean we are so free in the program choice so everyone should just do what they want to do so everything is fine and um, and then I thought I thought about this a long time because it kind of it got a little bit on my nerves that that um, that everyone said yeah you know he's a good leader or concert singer but in the very end when I sang in the final round I did all three genres i sang lead with orchestra mm. i sang oratorio and i sang opera you sang yes you sang don carlo and you sang and Ma mala songs and but you also sang barbara seville but not at that competition okay. <laughs> yeah and but but we were i think six baritones in the finals and okay. every other baritone i think sang barbara seville so yeah. it was probably wise to not sing it as yeah. well <laughs> but um yeah so i think this is what i like about this competition is at least for that year when i did it last year um was just you were just so free in the choice of the repertoire, and so they really care about, of course, like how you sing and how you perform, but also about how carefully do you pick your repertoire and how important is that that the singer 
uh, knows what what they're capable of what their voice can do so um yeah that was my experience and i just went through from round to round and through this whole emotional thing going on at the same time basically really straightforward just okay this is the next round check and then oh i'm in the finals okay i just gotta practice this now and so there was not really much time to to think too much which was probably the best thing but am i wrong in assuming that this competition sort of marked a very important part in your career Yes, no, it, it did. It definitely yeah. did. Yes, because yeah. um, I think I think I kind of realized that now, and not really right after the competition, but but I have to say that the the director of the Wiener Staatsoper was was in the in the jury just for the very first round. Then he had to leave, and um, he has heard me a year before that competition in another lead com- in a lead competition uh, Das Lied with Thomas Krastoff mm-hmm. and was in the jury and he liked me and he invited me to audition on the stage of the Wiener Staatsoper and then he heard me a year later at the Queen Elizabeth and just the first round and then right before the semifinals the day before the semifinals he wrote not he but his assistant wrote me an email with an offer to join the ensemble of yes yeah. so you joined the ensemble of Vienna State Opera last year yes. and you'll return in a month yes yeah <laughs> Can you talk about that experience so far and like what it's been like to be somebody who is really focused on song who finds himself in a space where you're learning what 10 roles yeah. over the year or something like that. Yeah, it's even more. It's it's kind of like 20 roles over the whole season, yeah. which is which is honestly not really possible if I talk about just vocal health and mm-hmm. and and mental and vocal musical preparation plus you're a dad and you have a baby at home (laughs) yes and of course like we we moved with a two weeks old baby and Mm -hmm. stuff but this this all doesn't really matter for me the thing is i i have done two uh, opera performances or two different operas professionally before i accepted this contract Hmm. in lyon two things i sang mazetto in don giovanni and i sang uh, the uh, Kaiser von Atlantis by Victor Ullmann, yeah. very cool piece. Yeah. And then I joined this, uh, the ensemble of the Wiener Staatsoper and have to learn 20 roles. And of yeah. course, I know the arias of whatever, Barbara of Seville yeah. and the Count. And I, and I know some, you know, everyone knows La Cidarem La Mano yeah. and stuff. But, but there's so many recits and the whole role and everything, this takes way, way, way more preparation. I yeah. think everyone can understand that. And... Um, so my first season is now done, and I survived, and I think yeah. my voice is still working. Yeah. Um, so I'm very happy about that. Do you feel um, like there was a danger but not working? No, because I checked in way too often uh, with my teacher to okay. to let it go down the yeah. whatever down the waterfall yeah. <laughs> or something. But but I do see I, I do see it with colleagues in general that uh, that it's easy to just basically go through. Your roles go through whatever you you do, also if it's concerts, and just not really care about technique anymore. And I think that's um, well for me. It wasn't it wouldn't be possible because I would just go get worse and worse and worse, and then no one would uh, want to hear me anymore. So I think you we have to be all very careful about about our instrument. That's just how it is, especially if you sing a lot. And um, and the Wiener Staatsoper uh, has the the challenge that they don't really rehearse much because there are 55 different operas in one season going mm-hmm. on. So uh, when I sang my first Belcorda in Elisir d'Amore now in June, I had three rehearsals. And they're all in a small space. And I saw the, the orchestra, the chorus 
on the opening night, basically. It's not really an opening night because it's not a new production, yeah. but, but on the, the first performance yeah. of yeah. the revival. Yeah. Um, it's different when you're part of a new production. I was also a part of Die Frau ohne Schatten, mm -hmm. connected by uh, Christian Thielemann. Huh. And we had six weeks of rehearsals. It's just very different. Um, but sometimes you just got to be quick. You don't really have any stage time. Not You don't see the orchestra before. And that is very challenging because usually... If you have these six weeks, you know you the voice um, gets used to the to the to the space, space and also to the to the role. If you yeah. have never done it, and then you you just go on stage of the Wiener Staatsoper, that I think that takes a lot of guts and and, and, and nerves somehow to just go there and just sing because. Um, do you feel prepared? And you know, I would love your candor. Do you feel prepared, like as an actor, to be doing all these different types of operas, different styles, different directors? No. I don't. I have to say, um, I I feel prepared enough to survive the performance, and that's. Um, I mean, it's. I think it's a very honest answer, and it might not. You know, there might be people who who think like, why does he say that or mm -hmm. something? But it's just. I mean, if you just imagine you're doing this perform mm -hmm. this opera for the very first time, it doesn't really matter how big the role is, but especially if it's a bigger role, and you get three, four days of rehearsals. Yeah. I mean, you cannot. You cannot basically get the role in, in 360 degrees. You just yeah. focus on certain things. And in the very end, since also you don't have a musical rehearsal with the orchestra, you it's more about going on stage and surviving. And in the very end, you can still... You, you are able, I think, to do magic on stage, even if you don't really rehearse much, because I think the orchestra listens pretty well to you. If, if they hear you have something to say... They will be with you. If you just sing, 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 you just, it's kind of, uh, you know, you, you go to your job, it's like a, what is that, like a mechanical thing. Like you a just, factory worker. Yeah, yeah, you just work and you're precise or yeah. not and you go there because someone told you you should go there and give this letter to uh, Susanna or whatever <laughs> and you just do it. But it's um, it's something that I personally miss because I'm coming from the from the concert recital world yeah um where collaboration is so important yeah, yeah. where where everything is is you know all the details are important mm -hmm. to it's yeah. not that you have to rehearse for years but but um you have to find those special moments too this is what what this art form is about and i think also opera is about that i mean of course you can if it's loud you can always hide behind the the noise that the orchestra makes yeah. or the the other singers make but but in the very end we i think we we all want to be moved by something if i go to a performance whatever it is i i don't i mean i don't want to be entertained in in a way of i can sit there with my popcorn and just eat yeah. and and listen to something i can then sit at home and do that with a cd or the tv or something mm -hmm. but i think we all want to be told something new or moved or or touched or or inspired or something absolutely and i think you can do that just when you when you have the time to to rehearse and everyone feels comfortable enough to present mm -hmm. this role it's not about that everyone needs to feel comfortable with because i think that music making is not not something that necessarily is comfortable for the performer and also not necessary for the audience it needs to be comfortable but it needs to be on this edge of of um of something something meaningful and um but not maybe too crazy in a way. You know, I mean, it's hard to say that, but somehow, um, you know, I've, I've heard some people in rehearsals and they go through a piece 
even in the Bach Oratorio, and they always say, so tempo okay? Does everyone feel comfortable? Okay, let's go on. And I think that's the wrong thing, because music making doesn't need to feel comfortable. It can feel comfortable, but I also like to, you know, when there's this, this power, uh, this kind of like... Mm, these energies that that hit each other and and, and this it's kind of like a wave that goes sometimes to one side to the other side but i think it's a, it's a constant moving it's nothing where you just Static, sit yeah. and relax i think yeah. yeah well i would love to talk more about opera <laughs> yeah. um because this show is ostensibly about opera but um my audience knows that i'm crazy about art song that's nice and uh, <laughs> you don't some, find that often so, sometimes it's annoying to them, but I'm just <laughs> asking you. So we're here at Ravinia Festival where there's a big emphasis on uh, song literature in the Young Artist Program. And uh, I have to ask you, like, you know, I hear the ability of your voice to yeah. sing operatically, but I also hear all the color and um, maybe off the voice singing that you do or, um, you know, different technique that you wouldn't apply in opera. Hmm. And I'm just curious, when do you make this decision? How do you make these decisions to do certain things in certain songs? And how far are you willing to take your voice for the expression, for the, you know, to, to express what you want to, yeah. you know, um, it's, I feel like you're the type of singer, like who's taking a lot of chances I and uh, I don't know if this is a healthy way, if this is sustainable. You said you check in with your teacher, you know. Yeah. But I just want to know, like, what are your, what, what's the decision-making process for you when you prepare a program? Well, there have been a couple of questions, so I'll try to answer that somehow. <laughs> no, yeah, it's a long wind-up. It's, it's to totally fine. No, uh, what just sticks with me for right now is how far would I get with my voice? Um, I think I would do anything to my voice that is that it keeps my voice healthy. I think as soon as as I do something to it um, that isn't healthy, I wouldn't do it. Um, that doesn't mean that I always sing in a very healthy way because, you know, we're all learning and we're mm -hmm. learning for the whole life. By the way, you're 28 yes. years old. 29. 29, okay. 29, yes. But I think, you know, the voice can, can, be, can sound ugly. If I mm. sing, uh, I don't know, if uh, the good examples, of course, in leader repertoire is uh, Erlkönig. Mm. And when it comes to very nasty things, you mm. can be aggressive with your voice. You can be um, rough and rude and, and ugly. Mm. Or also in opera, when Tosca uh, killed Scarpia, I think yeah. this is nothing about uh, singing beautifully. This is, this is drama going mm -hmm. on. But I think you need to do it in a healthy way. And I think that there is, most often, there is a healthy way to express certain things. What I do in preparation is um, um, that I, you know, I try to sing certain songs in different ways. How I work technically is my teacher, um, well, I don't want to talk about technique too much because it might be boring, but I just want to give a little overview. We love here. it. We love it. I, would, <laughs> I do think in, in three different types of breaths that I take. Mm -hmm. One is maybe the most intense, the most Italian way like a, to do it. It's kind of like a trumpet breath, you know, okay. like I would take my breath kind of like through a straw and okay. get it really back. Yeah. So basically what I don't want to do is I don't want to push my air out in the front. I don't want to shove everything in the front. So one, this is the trumpet breath, yeah. goes in the very back and just keeps continuing as I phonate 
to get the air to the back. The other one is called the beautiful breath and has more like something that carries from from your from your guts or from your heart up. Um, it is it is way more elegant, I think. Um, but it's still it's kind of it's, it's still a fuller, beautiful sound that you do. Um, and the other one is called worms. Uh, it's something that. <laughs> That that you know, I, I breathe in through my nose uh-huh. and try from this point in between my eyes to to kind of like have a little string out through my nose okay. and just try to channel the air down and not in the front. I can do all these three breaths in, in different intensity, but I think that the colors are very different from each other. And maybe for German repertoire, for anything fast, for um, for Bach and stuff, I, I use a lot of worms. Um, but they can also be big. Even if I sing Wagner, and I have to be kind of loud. Mm-hmm. This is very head dominant, um, and that carries well. I think people hear head dominant voices pretty well. So the other thing, you know, the other breaths are more like chesty or or have a good mix and everything. But I do think that these that this technique makes me being able to choose in the moment what I what I think I should do now or what I feel that day. If I think about. One day, I don't know, I sing a certain song and I I feel very, very intimate and then I use a very small breath or make it very delicate. If I think, no, this is anger, mm-hmm. then I just, you know, shove my air in the back and just and just pull it back like like a crazy person almost <laughs> to create the sound but with a voc- with with a, 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 yeah with a basically with a with a healthy technique. Mm-hmm. And that is very important. So um and I mean, I'm still learning and I'm still trying to do this. But in the very end, this is what makes this art form or just singing in general so interesting. I think otherwise I wouldn't maybe do it because because I'm coming from a very musical background. Not that my parents or anyone is a musician in my family. They are not. But but I grew up you know, singing in children's choir, being surrounded by music, um, playing in the school orchestra. And I think that I... Often, you know, through all through through singing a lot of folk songs and stuff uh, in the choirs, I, th- I think that my musical um, ideas are, are maybe more on the advanced side. But I couldn't really do it vocally for many years. And honestly, um, I was here in 2014 at, in Ravinia and, and met my teacher here. And since I work with her now, since five years, she basically gives me the tools to use what I want to do musically she never tells me do it this way do it that way she even today i skype with her before the concert and uh, i did a certain phrase and she let me sing in three different ways just to check in if i can do it and then and then basically she gives it up to me and she says you do whatever you want to do with this i'm just your voice teacher and i teach you how to do your musicality with your voice in a good in a healthy technique and i think that's basically the essence of everything and i think um that's important course what we talked about this earlier like the words the words are important uh, i just try to to show the words but you know even if you read the poem you can read it in different ways and you feel it in different ways and sometimes i feel happy sometimes i feel sad or tired or whatever it is and this will affect my performance and it will also affect me being an audience member when i see people in a performance i might be more open to to be uh, moved i might be very closed off and i don't then probably i shouldn't go to a concert honestly but I think this is this is the the yeah the the interesting part of the whole music making music experiencing um, and uh, 
yeah, I, I, I love to play with this. And if, if I do it better and better, I'm just very happy because cause it actually feels like you're tai chiing your voice. You're, <laughs> you think like, oh, I need, I need this. And then yeah. you take a breath and you just do it. And, and it's not about, um, oh, I better feel it this way. This is the first thing. I need, I need to feel it a certain way, but I, I definitely need the knowledge behind it. Someone here, uh, a coach here said, basically singing is like driving a car. In the very end, you're, in the very beginning, you're very, very busy learning all these things and like how to do this, how to do that. And we still are, but when we go on stage, of course, like no one wants to hear what I'm working on. Everyone wants to hear where I'm, where I am, mm -hmm. and what I do, and what I. And then no one wants to listen to me practicing, but they want to see me performing. And I think that's also important. That at some point, with all that work, that hopefully becomes more and more natural and automatic, you just do it. It's a plane flying overhead. It's a plane flying. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, that is a great place to stop. Uh, I don't, yeah. I don't want to stop, but we've yeah. reached our time, okay. and um, yeah, I, I have so much respect for you. Uh, I, I feel like I've always not had the technique to do what I want to do in my brain, you know. Yeah. And I listen to you sing, and I hear all the ideas coming through, and yeah. it feels like, oh, I've heard this song before. No, I've never heard this song before, yeah. you know. And uh, it's nice to know that there are people out there who care about this music as much as you do Thank and you. want to do something fresh and original, but, you know, with technique, apparently, well, <laughs> you need it. You know, it's, I think, well, it's also, you, you know, everyone is different. Everyone has, has her or his own path. Mm -hmm. And this is just how I, how I grew up, how I get there in a way. But, but honestly, I, I always thought five or more years ago that, that, um, I'm so musical. Don't people? Why? Do, why does? Why does? Whatever the audience doesn't really get it. What I mean, and I think at some point, since my, 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 basically just the vocal part of my performance wasn't as good, I thought maybe the first row gets what I mean, but it just doesn't carry. And at some mm -hmm. point, you need to know what you're doing to basically how the, how the technique serves the musicality. And I think the musicality is more. Well, I can't say it's more important. I think, I think. I don't want to hear anyone who just has a great voice or great technique. I mean, there are certain pieces that are very impressive, but I get bored after two minutes. And I want to hear people who have something to say. But if they don't have the technique to say it, it's also a problem. So it's, it's, a, it's a balance, and it always goes hand in hand. And, uh, yeah, yeah, lifelong process somehow. Yeah, well, yeah. you've got a couple of years left in your yes. career. <laughs> <laughs> Samuel Hashorn, yes. thank you for being on Opera Box Square. Thank you so much. Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided by Chicago Fringe Opera. Chicago Fringe Opera has announced their sixth season featuring works that show off their award-winning artistry. They won the American Opera Award, and we are with one of our American Opera Award winners. It's called the American Prize. Oh my gosh, oh, 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 right. I'd be really appreciative of that. Actually, there are two American Prize winners in this room. That's true. Yeah, exactly. Only one of us did Constellation Men's Opera. Wow, y'all win prizes, you get fancy. This season, experience an adaptation of Tom Waits' moody version of Wojtek and okay. the Chicago... pause. As the Wojtek man in that, the house. You've already talked too much about oh, Wojtek. We gotta move on. And the Chicago premiere of Jake Heggie and Gene Shear's haunting opera, To Remain. Get a sneak peek of these and more at Fringe at the Tap Room on September 24th from 5.30 to 8 p.m. at Lagunitas Brewing. But really, Tom Waits writes operas now? Is that the thing? 
Apparently. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, you know, why not? Bear, Gurlitz. You know, one of our most downloaded episodes is the Tom Waits Fox. Did you remember that episode where you you were you were not here? I don't, I don't think any of us. You, <laughs> you weren't alive. I, I was a wee <laughs> babe. There you can find Lagunitas beer, food, trivia, prizes, preview performances, and a free sing. What's free the, sing is such a weird concept. It's like all play what to is win. It? I'm, I'm, is okay. it like karaoke? I don't. I feel like it sounds like going commando or something like that. Last time I went free yeah, sing. I'm not I was thinking sing. like free, I'm not going to knock your choices free. over. <laughs> No, that feels wrong. That's not it. So I went to this event last year, and apparently they have like a. Apparently they did have uh, a pianist, and they had like a stack of music theater and opera scores. And you could just get up. I feel like. Singing. Wait, that's kind of what lovely. a party! Yeah. That sounds like yeah. fun. Well, a free sing will make for a fun and unforgettable evening. All proceeds from the event support Chicago Fringe Opera. Advance tickets are only fifteen dollars. More details at chicagofringeopera.com. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in opera land over the past week. Big news here in Chicago. Enrique Mazzola, Mazzola rather, will be taking over from Sir Andrew Davis as the new music director of the Lyric Opera of Chicago. Davis has held that position at the Lyric for 20 years. Congratulations to Mexican soprano Denise Velez, uh, Italian soprano Maria Novella Malfatti, American mezzo-sopranos Catherine Beck and Catherine de Young, American baritone Leroy Davis, and Polish baritone Pavel Troyak, who were named the newest ensemble members of the Ryan Opera Center at Lyric Opera of Chicago at the end of yesterday's six-hour public audition finals. According to the London Times, American mezzo-soprano and proud member of the LGBTQ community, Jamie Barton, made the last night of the proms woke in what has become a viral video. Barton stole the show wearing a rainbow pride flag during her rendition of Rule Britannia. Minnesota opera's Priti Gandhi told the uh, Star Tribune that she was once turned down by an unnamed opera company for the title role in Cenerentola because she wasn't blonde. Gandhi uh, is now uh, Minnesota's new chief artistic officer, and she aims to include more diversity in the industry. Simone, uh, Simon Woods, rather, the uh, CEO of the L.A. Philharmonic, surprised the classical music world by suddenly resigning from his post just six weeks before the opening of the new season. Woods called the Philharmonic, quote, an extraordinary organization, but that he has uh, concluded that his hopes and aspirations lie elsewhere. Opera Philly seems to be thriving. At least that's the message of a new article in the Philadelphia Citizen, which describes Opera Philadelphia's strategy of emphasizing new work and unusual marketing strategies to turn the company around over the past few years. Discussing the new world of opera, F. Paul Driscoll, the editor-in-chief of Opera News, says, quote, The audience redefined itself, the city and the industry has redefined itself too, and Opera Philadelphia has responded to that. A new article talks to three transgender singers, Elliot Franks, Brianna Sinclair, and friend of the show, Lucia Lucas, about the difficulty of navigating their identities within the context of the highly gendered and vocally precise world of opera. The link to that article will be on our website. Butterfly, Timothy Nelson's in-series reimagination of Puccini's classic but problematic masterpiece, has been garnering critical acclaim for the reframing the story so that instead of being about race or relying on stereotype, it focuses on the enduring aspects of the character and the great of the music. 
Russian bass baritone Mikhail Tom- Tomyshenko walked away 10,000 pounds richer last week after placing first in the Wigmore Hall International Singing Competition, and he's only 25 years old. On the disabled list, Pyotr Bachala is out at uh, Deutsche Oper Berlin's production of Verdi's Un Ballon Machera, and Mirto Papantatsui uh, will be stepping in for Christine Rice in the, Donna Alvi- uh, in the role of Donna Elvira at the Royal Opera House's production of Mozart's Don Giovanni. Exit stage right, the Boston Camerata has announced the death of British tenor Timothy Lee, uh, Lee Evans at the age of 58. The Camerata said Evans was, quote, a superlative musician, alert, accurate, and unfailingly musical. And on this day, September 16th, it was the premiere of Samuel Barber's Anthony and Cleopatra, the grand opening of the brand new Metropolitan Opera House in Lincoln Center in 1966. We also celebrate the 70th birthdays of directors Christopher and David Alden. Famed composition teacher and composer Nadia Boulanger was also born, uh, but in 1887. And Beatrix Smetana's uh, opera The Secret premiered in 1878. Um, and uh, Oliver would like to also point out that even though we don't usually talk about the anniversaries of deaths, it was 42 years ago in Paris that Maria Callas departed this world. And that is your two-minute drill. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Whoosh. I love that new one. He's got Ashley's name in it now. Yay! Yay. I'm really here, guys. <laughs> so we'll have really to put here. off the Mazzola story for when we have a little more time to talk about what the implication of that is going Absolutely. to be. Absolutely, yeah. But I just want to throw in really quickly that I was at the six-hour auditions of the Ryan Opera Center yesterday, and uh, they ended up with two Catherines in the mezzos, and the remaining uh, mezzo from the last pre- character from the last ensemble is a Kathleen. So they've got two Catherines and a Kathleen as mezzos. <laughs> and they took no tenor yesterday, uh, which is heartbreaking because I thought Especially one of them... Especially for this room. <laughs> I thought one of them was actually outstanding. <laughs> but can you imagine being one of the four finalists and then when they have everybody come out on stage, none of you were invited to be part of the ensemble. That's a serious burn. They did it for the drama. <laughs> <laughs> that hashtag drama. All right. Uh, I think sort of the uh, interesting story this week, at least from uh, my perspective, um, is the sort of, uh, this is not really a new story, but it's something that we've seen developing over the past several years, this Opera Philadelphia uh, thing. Uh, it's, it is thriving using the exact strategy I keep yelling at regional opera companies to take on, i.e., you know, doing new works, uh, uh, unconventional stuff that appeals to the kids, not being trapped in the... Truncating their season into a festival. Yeah. I think no, that's they're, not, neat. It's, they're not truncating their season. They add a festival right. on top of the regular right. season. So. But, but with this festival, that's, I think, one of the big draws for people is the opportunity to see everything in one bunch. So right. they're expanding their audience uh, reach to people outside of the region who can yes. say, like... For instance, Oliver, you and I get together for a weekend, <laughs> and we will see all of the shows. I mean, share, shameless plug. Get to share a room. What are you doing over there, guys? Opera Festival Opera Philadelphia has invited Opera Box Score to just be the man on the street uh, mm-hmm. at Opera at the O Festival. <laughs> so we'll be reporting for, about the O Festival uh, next week. Oh, we'll be looking forward to that. Uh, who else wants to talk about something? Matt, what do you want to talk about? Uh, I can't think of... Uh, 
a worse time in in British history to be singing Rule Britannia than since uh, 2016. <laughs> but uh, and apparently they like not not all they, they, people will wave EU flags at well during the performance as well. But uh, Jamie Barton is coming through <laughs> with advocating for underserved communities. Yeah, absolutely. Just dry, uh, drawing attention and visibility in an event that that actually gets a lot of eyeballs and has the opportunity to go viral because it's very silly and feel good and it's you're camp. Yeah. And, and you're getting it, and she's decided to use that platform to make a statement that she feels really passionately about, and I applaud her. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I also applaud her. L- she's very fantastic. literally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How about you, Ashley? What what jumped out at you this week? You know, the story out of Minnesota with Preeti Gandhi. I uh, I hate and am unsurprised that this happened to her, but I do love that more of the classical music world is going to get to to learn more about this. And frankly, you know, having this story be so, we we wonder if this happens, but now we have a a, a face and a story that goes with right. it. Right now. In full transparency, I do have a connection to Preeti. Uh, we go a lifetime ago. We got to spend some time together a few summers ago. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, she is she is a warm and bright and bubbly and stupid kind and stupid talented human. <laughs> Drink. And yeah, there you go. Uh, you know her heart, her artistry is really kind of undeniable. I love seeing her in this role. I love seeing her go to a company that has for a decade been making sort of bold forward-thinking choices in inclusion and in their repertoire and and having her be sort of their chief artistic administrator is just another one of those really good choices um but she's you know she's right that these experiences happen candidly you know her her move for this diversity and inclusion you know she's right people are going to respond if there's somebody that looks like them either on stage or on the podium so absolutely we should try to get her on the show she makes she makes a really strong first impression in that article i'm really oh absolutely it was uh it was one of those it was one of those articles i'm like yes this is what we need to to start fixing some of these problems. She, yes, can confirm. She is an outstanding human. And we we talk about this every now and then whenever a problematic opera that has to do with race comes up. But uh, I applaud Timothy Nelson, um, who, who is his, uh, I think it's site-specific in-series uh, opera company. Uh, I'm not sure if that's what it's called, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, his reimagination of Puccini's Butterfly, I think is is pretty brilliant because nobody wants to see that opera go away entirely. No, because the music is too good, right. you know. Right, but it's it does have good. major problems, and yeah, well, this like what? <laughs> <laughs> Yikes! Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really a gutsy move, and I would be interested to see it applied to uh, other operas as well. Some other ones, I'm sure we can think of in the repertoire that maybe don't have aspects that don't hold up as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would love to see this. Uh, um, so, you know, hey, if you're listening, send me a ticket. <laughs> it's tough to get a positive review from Anne Majette. So that, yeah. <laughs> you, you yeah. know that, uh, that you made a strong impression. Absolutely. There. All right, we got to wrap it up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. I'll tell you what my good call is. I can feel fall. I can feel it coming. No. It, it, next week, pumpkin I'm spice. I'm wearing... Been, they now make pumpkin spice iced coffee, which can confirm yes. is spectacular. So <laughs> exciting. I had my first pumpkin spice last week, and the guy, I told him, I, I whispered, I was like, oh, I have a pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> and, and then he's like, Latte for Toby, latte for Toby, and I just stood there and didn't respond immediately. I waited a few minutes. You got to do the mobile order. Do, yeah. do we have any other calls that are yeah. not pumpkin spice, yeah. Jason? Oh, I have to say that if you've been listening to me over my various platforms, you know that I've recommended this recording before. But since it is the uh, anniversary of Maria Callas's death, please seek out the 55 Traviata from La Scala, conducted by Giulini with Di Stefano and Bastianini. If you want to figure out what Maria Callas is all about, that's the 
great place to start. So. How about you, Ashley? You got a good call for us? I do. I have a good call. If you're going to be in New York City, uh, I believe it's on the 19th. Merkin Hall is bringing back uh, The Hunger this week, which is the uh, which is the piece about the uh, Irish potato famine, which doesn't sound exciting, but the story is, <laughs> is absolutely Irish riveting. potato famine! <laughs> oh, what? what? <laughs> I, I, I will almost certainly be there if I can get off work. All right, that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Samuel Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Wildell, who is can be found at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Oliver, uh, for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings, Tobias Wright, and Ashley Hardgrave, and uh, uh, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you're shopping for those fall sweaters. We're back on Monday, September 23rd, with more opera, more hot takes, and more pumpkin spice. Join us then. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment. 